Hello and welcome back to the Island Stories podcast. I'm your host, Harriet Hadfield. If you love the Isle of Wight, or like many, you dream of living here one day and want a slice of island life, this is the podcast for you. Every season we speak to amazing islanders, each with an extraordinary story to tell. So let me introduce the first guest. In honour of Remembrance Sunday, a wonderful island veteran. Born and bred here, his incredible military career led him to be chosen as the island's Lord Lieutenant, welcoming members of the royal family to the Isle of Wight, including Her Late Majesty the Queen. Major General Sir Martin White, KCVOCBJP, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Harriet. So that's your full title. Uh, for the purposes of this interview, what on earth do I call you? Um, I suggest Martin is probably as near as we need to be. I can get <clears> away with that. Okay, the first question we always ask on the podcast, very simply, why the island? Well, I say in my case, I didn't have really very much choice. My mother and father were here and and it was uh, wartime uh, and I was born in Seaview and um, that's where I've been ever since. So I guess I didn't have much choice in the matter. So you were born in 1944 in the Prince's Mead nursing home. Where is that? Does that still exist? It does. Um, it's now flats and it's uh, halfway between Seaview and Nettleston. So uh, you could argue I was born in Nettleston or you could equally argue, argue I was born in Seaview. And the Seaview-Nettleston argument is always always a contentious one. I've briefly been in contact with a childhood friend, John Clark, who said you were known as Nipper White and still are to some. Well, I am, I am to John Clark known as Nipper White. <laughs> But I guess that most people who are born on the island are at some point called a nipper, aren't they? And it just happens that I'm nearly 80 and I'm still called a nipper. It does seem slightly incongruous to, with your great sort of military career uh, to be called nipper, but I, I like it. He also said that he was born a month ahead of you, which made him the senior baby. Well, you could describe it like that, certainly. <laughs> yes, I started off, I did a little, little, little time at Rye Junior School and then Nettleston Primary School. Uh, and then uh, I passed my 11 plus and went to Sandown Grammar School, as it was then. I joined the Army Cadet Force there, influenced, I think, mainly by my woodwork master, a chap called Dick Maybe, who who was a huge influence on me, um, not, not particularly uh, improving my woodworking skills, but certainly in terms of joining the military. I thought it was a great, a great organisation to join. So let's just talk about your island life. Give us an idea of what it looks like now. Where do you live? Who do you live with? Well, I still live in Seaview, which is uh, it, which is rather strange, I guess. But um, when I left the army, there was a there was an argument because my wife Fiona is Scottish that we should go to Scotland. But I resisted <laughs> resisted that, um, and we came back to the village. Uh, and we've been in the village ever since. We live now up by the football field in Seaview uh, and have been there for the last 10 or 12 years. We were before living in the village. I spent a lot of time travelling around the island as Lord Lieutenant and so I was very involved in local affairs, local charities, um, local organisations. So um, that has been my life since I retired. Having grown up here, you left the island at 16 um, and went to Welbeck College in Nottinghamshire. What's Absolutely, that all about? in Nottinghamshire, yeah. It's closed now, sadly. It's a, an army-sponsored boarding school, which really was essentially was a sixth-form college, which took me through my um, maths and physics A-level, the aim being to suitable young men at, at that stage to join the technical side of the army. 
I was not technical at all. I somehow got through my A-level maths and physics, but I ended up uh, not in the technical side, but in as a logistician in the then the Royal Army Service Corps. So I want to ask you lots about that. <clears throat> but just first of all, you went to Sandhurst, which you, know, you sort of go in as a officer cadet and come out ready to ready to lead men in the army. Welbeck fed Sandhurst essentially, and and I moved on to to Sandhurst, um, having done a selection process to get into Welbeck College. Um, I then went on to Sandhurst as essentially a schoolboy, and I turned up at Sandhurst and did a two-year course and came out the other other end as a second lieutenant, um, having been trained in all sorts of military skills and, of course, hopefully improve my leadership skills as well. You've been described to me by um, some friends as coming from quite humble beginnings, a humble background. Was it something when you were growing up that you ever imagined once you got to Sandhurst that this boy from the Isle of Wight could end up there? Yeah, I, my father was a, was a school teacher, and I, whether that makes him humble or not, um, those who've been in his class would say he wasn't at all humble. But I, I am the son of a, a school teacher uh, and very proud to be so. Did I ever imagine myself at Sandhurst? Probably not. But of course, one always has ambitions, and uh, you just go as far as the as far as the game takes you, don't you? And, and and in my case, it took me rather further than I thought, probably. Where did he teach? Well, he taught. He was a pupil at Ride School. Um, he taught back at Ride School as well in the in the junior school. Uh, and then he taught at, taught at Nettlestone and various other primary schools on the island. He was a primary school teacher. I love that you went to Nettlestone because my little boy just started in reception there. And it's a great school. Fabulous school. It was. It's always been a good school. Um, and the parents have always been very supportive of, of Nettlestone. And uh, I have very, very fond memories of Nettlestone School. <clears throat> You've come out of Sandhurst and you go to Germany where you spend 15 years, so quite quite a long time. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm a product of the Cold War, essentially, and most people at that stage spent quite a lot of time in Germany. We had about something like 50,000 troops in, in Germany. It was called the British Army of the Rhine, and I did my stints there. I, I was there as a second lieutenant and lieutenant. I was there as a captain. I was there as a major commanding a squadron, and then I was lucky enough to go back... Uh, to command a regiment in Germany. So so my military experience was essentially based around you know, the Russian hordes poised to come over and uh, attack the West. So And that's where my experience essentially was. And that threat of Cold War, I know from friends of mine who grew up in military families in Germany, that threat of Cold War was always just sort of lurking in the background, wasn't it? But for you, it was very real. Yes, it was. Um, uh, lurking about, yes, I guess it was. It was. It, it underpinned really everything we did. Of course, from 1969, um, the threat of terrorism from Northern Ireland was, was also ever-present. Uh, and so Northern Ireland was a, a, was a feature of our lives as well. But essentially, our um, deterrence was our game. And, and we, did, we were in Germany when we, when we, for most of our, our service. Now, I think it was during that time, because we're sitting in your office, which I always love doing interviews in people's offices, especially when they've had 
long careers because you know the walls are covered with various different mementos I suppose from from your career but also springing out at me is a photograph of a very beautiful young woman in military uniform who's she well that's Fiona my wife um, <laughs> and uh yeah, I can really pick them, can't I? <laughs> she is gorgeous. Um, <clears throat> Still is. She was, she was serving in the women's, as it was then, the Women's Royal Army Corps. Of course, uh, life is different, different for women in the services these days, and rightly so. Uh, and she didn't pay me to say that. Um, <laughs> but yes, we met, we met in Aldershot. I was undergoing young officers training, and she was at Guildford in, in her depot. And, um, and we married in 1966. So you worked your way up through the ranks and then the sort of experience that you've described as life-changing that I think everyone who I speak to on the island knows you for was being an integral part of the Gulf War. So in 1990s, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and this became really quite a turning point in, in your career. Everyone at some point has a turning point in their career um, and your training as an army officer all comes to a head at some point. And in my case, that was following Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait uh, and the deployment of UK forces to kick him out of Kuwait. And that was my opportunity to, you know, not prove myself, but um, to put into practice all the training that I'd been through for the last 15, 20 years. And you were in charge of the logistics. So getting everything, people, equipment, ammunition, rations, fuel into the right place at the right time, which is absolutely vital. Yeah, that, that's, that was my responsibility. So when I got summoned by the commander-in-chief, I was at that point stationed as a full colonel in Rheindahlen in Germany. The commander-in-chief uh, called me in one morning and said, I've got a job for you. Uh, and it's to go to run the logistics in the Gulf, and we're going to send a brigade to the Gulf. And I thought, great, this is my golden opportunity to to put into practice everything that I have learnt and, and been part of for the last 20 or 30 years. And it started from there. And you weren't daunted by the prospect? Yeah, I mean, of, of course, of course it, was a, it was a challenge. The environment was different. The distances were different. The problems of equipment were going to be very different we needed to bring units up to war establishments and they'd been through a peacetime training establishments so there was a huge a huge amount to do and of course we had got used to as an army cold war sitting in germany restricting our our, our spending to a huge extent on on some of the essentials for war fighting like ammunition and spares and so on and so forth so there's a there's a lot to do and very different. You said about sort of waiting during a Cold War situation, but this was rapid and you were credited with much of the success of it. Um, yes, thank you. Uh, I, I, yeah, it was, there was a lot to do in a very short time. But in fact, go back one, I was on holiday in Seaview in August and I read in the paper that Saddam Hussein had in, invaded Kuwait. I thought, oh, blimey, regatta will be soon, and so we can we can enjoy ourselves in Sea View. I got a phone call and had to go back back to Germany, and then go on a recce to uh, Saudi Arabia, probably about ten days after. And we had to deploy about four or five weeks after that. So we actually deployed in early October. 
So there was a huge amount to do. Some of the units were in Germany. Some of the units were in the United Kingdom, used to doing completely different things. So we had a lot of training to do, a lot of re-equipping to do, uh, and we had to sort ourselves out to go to Saudi. So it was, um, yeah. Um, I was talking to Bob Seeley, of course, um, our Member of Parliament, but also a veteran. And he said that everyone misunderstands how quite how important logistics are. And he told me an anecdote, which of course is connected because he was in Baghdad in Saddam Hussein's old palace. And mm. there was written on the wall, there ain't no mission without the logistician, which I've had to practice saying, but I thought that was a great story. You know, armies need logistics. It's absolutely yeah, yeah, critical. It's, it's, I think logistics is a, an essential part of any war fighting operation. And uh, if you don't have logistics, you don't have war fighting. And actually, as a logistician, you have to understand exactly what the operational plan is and how you need to support it. Uh, and so consequently, I spend a lot of time with General Sir Peter Dilliabillier in Riyadh in, in Saudi, understanding what he wanted to do with the Americans. We had logisticians embedded in the American headquarters. And when 1st Armoured Division came out uh, to assist the operation, uh, General Rupert Smith uh, came out and Rupert and I spent a lot of time together um, understanding each other, what each other w wanted to do. Because, of course, logisticians have limitations and we can't, they, we can't let the operators do exactly what they want to do. They need ammunition, they need fuel, they need spares uh, and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a combined operation. You were promoted from colonel to brigadier during that time. Yes. You've said of it, it so was a special feeling, high pressure. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Absolutely. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Um, and and, and, I, and the, the further I get away from it now, uh, I've had time to reflect on it over the years, and it was a, a, a life-changing moment for me. What did it feel like when the war, in, a, in, in effect, was over, when you'd won? What did that feel like? Well, it was a very short war, and, and, and the actual land battle was only about 100 hours although the air battle had started in early January, so we'd had six or seven weeks of, of the air war. And what did it feel like uh, when it was over? Actually, I'll tell you what happened when it was over. Uh, a man with a, a finance man came in the door and said, we need to cost out some of the things that you've been doing. <laughs> so the work <laughs> so wasn't I won't over. You, I won't tell you what my chief of staff told him to do. <laughs> And that sort of friendship, you know, I know from friends of mine who were in the army, that's something that they always miss, you know, they still miss it. Do you still miss that sort of camaraderie, the friendships you had there? You never lose those friendships. And and uh, we had to put a headquarters together for the, for the first Gulf War. And we're still together. We still have lunch every year. And we're 30-something years on. Uh, and those friendships are, are forged in you know, usually quite stressful situations, and they endure, to be honest. And do I miss Do I miss the army? Do I miss that? No, because, you know, one's fortunate enough to be able to do other things, and, and that's what I did. Um, as I often say, you know, one door closes and another one opens, and that's what's happened to me, and uh, I've enjoyed my time out of the army almost as much as I enjoyed it in, because I had the you know, great good fortune to be appointed Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant. So, um, you know, life went on. 
you left the army in 1998, a major general by that point, and in 1999, you were appointed vice lord lieutenant. So that was sort of getting you ready for the big job, which you got in 2006. How do you get a job like lord lieutenant? How does that happen? That's a $64,000 question, Harriet, isn't it? Um, Well, uh, I was appointed vice lord lieutenant uh, to Christopher Bland, um, who I still see and who I am a great admirer of, incidentally. I've had a chat with him. Have you? <laughs> yes, about you. <laughs> um, he is a great admirer of you as well, I can confirm. <laughs> um, and and then I, I was appointed Lord Lieutenant. And I'm often asked the question, you know, how do you become Lord Lieutenant? Well, there's a process, uh, as everything in government, there's a process of, of appointing uh, Lord Lieutenants and Bishops and senior people. And it's run by the Cabinet Office. Um, the Prime Minister has a role, a hand in it. And it's run by a man, uh, I don't say his name, but Richard Tilbrook, who is uh, clerk to Privy Council and is responsible for coordinating all senior appointments. And Richard comes down and to the county that needs a Lord Lieutenant and has runs an interview process. And I was part of that. And I came out of the other end as the Lord Lieutenant. So, um, well, Christopher Bland said you were the obvious choice. In fact, he said his background was so much better than mine. Uh, you knew how everything worked. And I, I guess what you had done in the army actually set you up very well to make sure that royal visits to the island, which is which is one of the parts of the job, there are many parts, ran smoothly. I mean, I know from covering royal visits as a journalist, everything has to go like clockwork so actually you had a great cv for that yes and i th- i think you're right and it's no accident of course if you look at the history of, of the lieutenancies they were military originally uh, and many lord lieutenants are ex-military not not as many as there were when i first started um, because i think you, you know it's a quality of the individual man or woman um, rather than whether they have a military background, which is which is really important. Um, and so if you look at the lieutenancies, and there's probably about 9,800 of them across the country, um, don't know what the proportion is now, but certainly most are not military now, which I think is right. But But going back to your question, of course, you know, I was well suited in terms of background and training too, take on the role and you know role visits is a is a case in point but it's also communications as well you know you 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 spend a lot of time communicating as an army officer so so you so you do as a businessman all one absolutely so you, you did it for 13 years you oversaw more than 50 royal visits but there's a lot more to the role as well I mean what other things because I think that for a lot of people on the island the role of Lord Lieutenant's probably quite mysterious a bit like High Sheriff so what other things do you get involved in because it's, it's really quite an important job yeah you're the sovereign's representative in the in the county and as such you represent the sovereign uh, in my case, Her Majesty the Queen, uh, and in current Lord Lieutenant Susie Sheldon is, is of course the King. So you are you you do what the royal family does in in in, a, in the county. So you support charitable works. You are responsible for overseeing the honours and awards system in the county, like you, MBEs and that MBEs, kind of thing. MBEs, OBEs, and so on. 
you're not the fount of MBEs and OBEs. The sovereign, of course, is the fount of them. Um, but you do have a role in overseeing the process, as it were. So you must be incredibly well networked around the island and know what's going on, who people are. I think that's I think that's part of the role. You need to know, you need to understand the island at every at every level. To be honest, um, whether that be you know going out with the police, whether you're because you're involved with the magistrates as well as as, as appointing magistrates. So it, you know, and you need to understand the charitable world, which is a very important part of the role as well understanding and supporting the charity charities on the island of which there are you know hundreds and it is sort of firmly placed in the local mechanisms of governing as well in that you have offices in county hall in newport you have a staff a team there and um, what about things like citizenship ceremonies does that come under your remit yeah, as well absolutely absolutely you, you know the citizenship is as part of the the process as well. Going back to the royal visits, I think the highlight must have been when Her Late Majesty visited in 2012 because it was the Diamond Jubilee and then the next day she was opening the London Olympics. Seems like a golden age now, doesn't it? Amazing, isn't it? It The 31st of July 2012 it was, the date was. Uh, It was a wonderful, wonderful sunny sunny day and Her Majesty and and the Duke of Edinburgh, who visited the island a lot as in his yeah. role at, at Caswick, of course. Stayed on, on board Leander, that is um, the Gosling's yacht, and overnight they were down somewhere off Newtown Creek and at 10 to 11 or something they came into, into Cows and Fiona and I met them and that was one of the kind of highlights of my 13 years as meeting Her Majesty and the Duke coming coming ashore. We did all sorts of things, including listening to Cow's Primary School, singing a song they specially written to opening the Cow's lifeboat station, and then going up to the Haven and seeing the whole layout of voluntary organisations showing Her Majesty and the Duke, you know, what we got up to on the island in terms of the charitable world. What do you think it meant to islanders that she made that visit when she did it as well? I hope the island felt that they were an important part of the structure of this country. There were people on the parade at Cowes at four o'clock in the morning waiting to see Her Majesty. And so I think that tells its own tale, that, you know, there were people there four, five, six hours before she arrived just to see her. There was a little bit of a panic when she was meant to be leaving and she had another engagement to go to on the mainland. What happened? Well, if you mean the helicopter wasn't there, that's probably probably correct. <laughs> that's what I've read. There was a certain amount of panic, I think, probably <laughs> the right. The private secretary, uh, then Sir Edward Young, uh, was um, was 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 throwing a track. Uh, where's the helicopter? Blah blah blah. So we all jumped into the cars and went up to Northwood, where they were landing in the a farm up up Northwood. We got lost on the way up there as well. Because I, I said, we're not going the right way. Anyway, we eventually got there. <laughs> and as we were coming into the to the landing strip, a helicopter appeared. Um, and the Biles, whose farm it was, had very, very helpfully cut the grass in the field. <gasps> the day before the royal visit, because they knew it was important, the Queen was coming, we better cut the grass. So we drove onto the field... The helicopter comes into land and you couldn't see anything for flying grass. (laughs) 
was all over the cars, all over everywhere. Her Majesty thought it was hilarious. <laughs> she thought it was hilarious, but um, but poor old uh, the poor old Biles family they <laughs> they lost their name. Thank goodness she wasn't out of the car by the time the yeah, helicopter uh, yeah, landed. And yeah, yeah. um, you mentioned there was a panic. Do you ever panic? I can't imagine you do. Um, you, you better ask Fiona whether I panic, <laughs> and my children as well whether I panic. Not often, not often. So many different visits. I've been looking through the photos. There's, you know, the now king, Prince Charles, as he was, um, Princess Beatrice, obviously um, the queen as well. What was it like being able to bring all of these people who, who, you know, they do draw crowds and they do make people very happy when they see them? What was it like to be able to sort of host all of those visits? I think that's a, a really important part of island life for me. I firmly believe that we have got you know, a lot going for us on this island. In my role as Lord Lieutenant, part of being able to sell that, as it were, was to have members of the royal family down here seeing what we get up to. One of the things I made a point of doing was calling the shots on royal visits. I used to sit down maybe two or three months before the end, end of the year and plan royal visits and ask for royal visitors and then have an idea. I had a list of things which I wanted to show them, whether it be industry, whether it be education, charities, you know, a whole range of things that on the island we're damn good at. We don't sell ourselves well sometimes. We undersell ourselves. We are good at so many things, and you know that. Um, I do. And, and that was the way I felt that I could sell the island. And being an islander, it was easy for me. I think we must be kindred spirits because that's why... We do the podcasts, Alex and myself, because yeah. we believe in the island and we want people to know yeah. far beyond these shores how many incredible people, how many incredible organisations. We um, at Homestar, which is a charity for young families I'm a trustee yeah, I know of, it well. the Duchess yeah. of Gloucester visited us yeah. uh, about three months ago. And just to see the volunteers, the staff who work incredibly hard, sitting down with a member of the royal family, it just means so much. It can really change people's lives, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. To see somebody who probably the most important things ever happened to them is to meet the Queen or and to see what effect that, that has. It, it is, it's magical. Do you think we'll be welcoming His Majesty the King anytime soon? I know you're not doing the job anymore, but is that a visit that we can look forward to, do you think? I really hope so. I, you know, I think if you we last last had a visit in 2012 so that is now it's a long time that's you know so that's some time ago now that's 11 years isn't it i reckon you know we ought to get one fairly soon we need I'll, to get that invitation in <laughs> no, I'll have a word with the lord left hand <laughs> the royal yacht squadron had a 200th anniversary with royal heads of state visiting something went a little bit wrong are you able to tell us that story well i i, I know the story you to, to which you refer I don't think the lady concerned would mind if I, t I told you the story. Um, visiting heads of state, of which there were, I don't know, 13, 14 from across Europe, uh, we went all went up to a, a lovely, lovely um, memorial service in the Holy Trinity in Cowes. A member of my staff was ticking off the people as they came in because it was a ticketed affair. So she asked this particular individual, name please, with a slight pause. And the, the voice came back, Harold. <laughs> Another pause from my member of staff who said, Harold what? 
<laughs> Another pause. King Harold comes back the reply. And I promised that I would never, never, ever tell that story. <laughs> um, but I have. She must have felt absolutely mortified. But it's a great story. It's an easy mistake to make. She's absolutely fine with it. That's <laughs> <Nice laughs> <to> Andrew. <laughs> So looking back through loads of the photos that were taken, mostly by Mike Dunkerson, who's still the the photographer to the Lord Lieutenant, he said it was just great working with you as a team. What was that team like that you had behind you, I guess, in that role? Well, bearing in mind that that, um, even the lady who or the person who supports you, uh, the deputy clerk to the lieutenancy is, is paid by County Hall. Nobody else gets any money. So we're really all volunteers, including the Lord Lieutenant. So Lord Lieutenant doesn't get any, any money for his uh, his or her work. You form a very, very small team and you have to work well together. So when you're 75, you have to stop being yes, Lord Lieutenant. That's Those are the rules. That's the rule. So that's when you stopped. And you said at the time you were going to keep chickens. And I'm just looking out of the window. Do we have any chickens yet? No, we had chickens. Uh, we had chickens. Um, we had four chickens. Four chickens. Don't forget, this is five years ago. Yeah. The four chickens have uh, gone to that big uh, house in the sky now, and uh, not. <laughs> and that was <laughs> the end of that. Can, you can delete that. Bit. <laughs> 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 but they're, they're no longer with us. <laughs> chickens are no longer with us, and and I, and I haven't eaten them. Was that a short-lived chicken? No, 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 absolutely not. I, I absolutely love my chickens. And they, they were with us all through uh, lockdown. And um, the last one died not that long ago. So, no, I'm, I'm going to get some more. The last thing I just want to talk to you about, because obviously we are in the run-up now to Remembrance Sunday, and there are so many veterans on this island, you know, so many people who retire here have served in the armed forces. And I know you've been hugely involved with things like Armed Forces Day and Remembrance Services. How well do you think veterans here are being looked after? I think you've got to take a, a, a broad view of, of the veterans' world. Uh, and, and you rightly say that, that on the island there are a lot of veterans and many of them struggle for all sorts of, all sorts of reasons. I think that they are, on the whole well looked after there are national veterans charities SAFA being one um, the association Royal Naval Association Army Benevolent Fund RAF Association now whether when people need support it's they're easy to access that's a different mm. question I think on the whole they are because I think the medical medical profession and NHS has embraced the need to link in with veterans organizations because you know it's 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 not always a medical problem it's often a going to be a mental problem or a financial problem mm. and many veterans just get on with life yeah that's very much the sort of you know yeah. you, you just get on you with just, it just get on with it and how important is remembrance sunday to you i think it's really important and i always think back on, on Remembrance Sundays that I've been part of, in particular in the Gulf, when it really was quite relevant, you know. And we had, in November 90, wasn't it, in a hangar in the port of Al Jubail in Saudi Arabia. Um, and the wind was blowing, and there was probably six or 700 people 
in that remembrance service. And to every single one of us there, we didn't know what the next few months was going to was going to bring us. And it sticks in my mind absolutely now, and I can feel the hairs on the back of my neck going up just thinking about it. Equally, Remembrance Sunday in Seaview. I was going to ask, where will you be this coming I'll Sunday? I'll be in Seaview, because I've 14 years, I was in Newport attending the, the county one. As soon as I retired, I needed to be here because I had three great uncles who were killed in the First World War, and this is where I need to be, in Seaview. Did the hair still go up on the back of your neck? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and I've had friends who've been, been killed, and, you know, it's for me, it's a very personal day, moment, two minutes. Yeah, and for so many people around the yeah, island, I think they'll is. be listening we're, to we're this and thinking. Mostly, but same. You just need to go to to the to the Minster in Newport to see how many people, even now, gather in the square, and how many of them are young too, not just old fogies, youngsters, and that's important too. That we and that the younger generation, and they do, I think, understand. You know what generations of people have have sacrificed, so we can, you know, grumble about the Isle of Wight Council, Council for, ex- for example. <laughs> you can cut that out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've actually helped me turn the corner into the final part of the podcast, where we ask all our guests a quick fire round of five things about the island. Now, you're the first interviewee of season three. We've changed a couple of the questions. Some of them have stayed. Um, So, Sir Martin White, are you ready for your five questions? As ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) Number one, your favourite island restaurant? Number three, in Cows High Street. A little little restaurant just at the top of Cows High Street. Number two, your favourite shop? Independent or not, this is a new question. Seaview Community Shop. Hey! <laughs> if I didn't say that, I'd been shot. <laughs> well, it is... No, no seriously. Yeah. It is a, it's a very, very good example of what communities can do. Number three, which island charity is closest to your heart? Mountbatten, no doubt. Everyone on this island, sooner or later, is touched by the hospice in some way or other. And I... Proud to be their patron. <clears throat> Number four, your hidden gem. Somewhere specific off the beaten track. Priory Bay. <laughs> what's so special about Priory Bay? I mean, I know obviously living in Seaview as well, but if people haven't been there, what's what's so special? It's the best place for prawning on the island, and I'm not telling you whereabouts in Priory Bay that is. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, this is a new question. What one new thing would you like to see on the island in 10 years' time? Well, I think being a product of the island's education system, and it was marvellous for me, gave me so much in my life. And I know that the education system on the island has struggled in recent years. I like to see it back where it was when I was a nipper. There's something wrong with it right now, and it's being challenged, and it's challenging, and we need to sort it out some way or other. Absolutely. Okay. Martin, thank you. It's been amazing to get to know you better and hear your island story. I'm Harriet Hadfield. My producer is Alex Warren. You'll find us on Instagram at Island Stories Podcast. 
If you want more Island News, sign up for my weekly email newsletter at harriethadfield.co.uk. And we'll have another episode, another interview, another amazing Islander in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye.